0: Today's show is brought to you by Valley of the Boom from National Geographic. This all-new six-part limited series follows the stories of three companies trying to change the world through technology during Silicon Valley's unprecedented tech boom of the 1990s. From the first browser wars to the story of a con artist who reinvents himself as a tech entrepreneur, these are the true stories of how the web was won. Valley of the Boom premieres Sunday, January 13th at 9, 8 central on National Geographic. But you can watch the first two episodes right now on demand and on the Nat Geo TV app.
1: is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. We are here at Vox Media headquarters in New York City. I'm talking with the great Susan Crawford. Hi, Susan.
2: Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for coming. You are a Harvard law professor, but I think of you as a smart person who explains the internet to me.
2: I think of myself as a technological humanist.
1: All right. That sounds less fun. Oh, you're you're the person who explains how, <laughs> how, how the internet works and doesn't work, specifically when, we, when I have questions about broadband and net neutrality. Um, I go to you, and I was just talking to you off the air. Um, we did this in 2014. There was a net neutrality decision, and, and you, should, you should go Google. Google, Google Peter Kafka and Susan Crawford. And you'll mm. get a very, very cogent explanation of net neutrality law uh, and what works and what doesn't. Um, today, we're here because you have a book. I do. It's called Fiber. The Coming Tech Revolution and Why America Might Miss It. Um, and just to set this up, so we spend a lot of time at, on this podcast talking about Netflix and Apple and Google and how thing, and, and the fight to get things to your living room. We don't really spend much time about sort of physically how that's going to happen, and that's your focus, mm-hmm. how the bits get to your screens. Mm-hmm. Um, so... And and you've talked in the past about sort of the the dismal state of broadband Mm -hmm. in this country. This seems like it's kind of a sequel, right? Broadband broadband is miserable, overpriced, controlled by a handful of companies. Same thing with fiber.
2: Americans at their best are never cynical. And Uh this is the next chapter in the story saying... Net neutrality is just a symptom, just a little tiny corner of a giant story for the country, which is that we have no plan to upgrade our actual connectivity to meet what is standard in many Asian countries, increasingly in Japan, a lot of Northern Europe. And Americans just don't know about it. So like today, yet another big story about Facebook on the front page of the paper we're all like kids on a soccer field looking at the ball in one corner of the field. It's Google and Facebook and Twitter. There is a huge undiscovered story that this book captures about, you know, the the guys who are actually bringing those platforms to our living rooms and how much power they have and how many scrappy cities in America are taking their destiny into their own hands to make sure there's great network connectivity.
1: So, so what is the problem? Is the problem that, that people don't have enough speed to deliver stuff to their houses? they don't have enough choice? Is that they have enough speed and choice now, but they're going to need more in the future?
2: It's actually a, a deeper, more cosmic problem than uh-huh. that, that we're paying rent, essentially, as a country to a handful of companies uh, that are selling second-rate Extraordinarily expensive it's internet the access
1: and Verizon's and at and well. Yeah, it's
2: really basically the cable companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you live, say, in Austin, you've got one choice of a cable operator, local cable monopoly, who's going to sell you internet access, and it's extraordinarily expensive, and it's asymmetrical, meaning that you're mostly downloading, not uploading. Right. So this is actually dumbing down the entire country. And our ability to compete on the international stage.
1: I'm going to De- play devil's advocate. I'm sitting in my, my basement in Brooklyn. Um, I have a nice TV, it's pretty cheap. I have Netflix, and I was able to watch a great Coen Brothers movie. Stream <laughs> just fine. I have, I have all the speed I need. I think I'm paying 60 bucks a month. Um, I used to only have one choice, which annoyed me, but now I have two because Verizon showed up. Great, um,
2: you're in an unusual situation. I mean, yeah,
1: so I, and I realize that that, that I'm, I'm in a very small minority there that I have the choice of multiple mm-hmm. broadband things. But but nothing really changed when Verizon showed up. I think my pricing got a little better, my speed got a little better, but my life didn't get any better. Um, I'm able to stream the internet and I can watch TV on it. Why do I need more speed? <laughs>
2: well, you're talking about a very cramped vision of what we use data for. Uh-huh. You know. Saying that I can download movies easily is a tiny part of the possibility of being able, say, to work from home in such a way that you feel present in the office. At a cost that doesn't matter to you. In China, people are paying $10 a month for much higher capacity, both upload and download, than you have. That's as a result of their own industrial policy. We don't have that kind of policy in this country. And we don't seem to have a path to get there at the moment. So... What's terrible about the story you're telling mm-hmm. is that you're you're saying I think of the internet as something for entertainment, yeah. just like another broadcast TV screen, and not for going to the doctor, getting an education, working, uh, developing a new business that no other country's ever heard of. We won't be able to do that unless we have this tremendous connectivity.
1: You spend a lot of time in your book talking about uh, the story of electricity coming to America. So why why is that important for the story of fiber?
2: It's an exact parallel. So in, let's say, the 20s, a handful of companies controlled... Uh, electricity, in the United States, and they were selling it only to businesses and to a few rich people in selected urban areas. Right, you didn't it.
1: get electricity to your house; it was N- not it was, necessarily so, unless you were a very rich person.
2: Yeah, not a, it was not considered to be a utility. It was it was a private product, just like I don't know a tuna fish sandwich. Uh-huh. And where the tuna fish sandwich market was cornered by one company, you'd pay whatever they wanted to charge you, and it wouldn't necessarily be available in your house. We are walking down that same path with Internet access today, although three-quarters of Americans from both parties view it as a utility, as something in which the government should be involved. It's not necessarily present in all corners of the country, extremely expensive and controlled by a few private companies. We haven't yet gotten to the part of the story where the public gets really worried about this for the future of the country and essentially demands that we get our act together and make sure that this is actually provided on a utility basis and made available cheaply to everybody.
1: Right, it's sort of literally not... It's it's, it's incomprehensible to imagine fiber access being a public policy debate, someone running on this, someone actually getting votes because of this, both because of just the state of politics specifically right now, there's Mm -hmm. so much else going on, but also just, it's, it's hard to imagine this being a motivating factor. But as you point out in the book, this is, you know, FDR was talking about electricity. Mm -hmm. Lyndon Johnson made -hmm. his name bringing electricity to the hill country of of Texas. So Mm -hmm. there was a time where you politicians had real benefit in extending this, um, the other thing you point out in the book, i was kind of setting you up, right, was, was when electricity showed up, people thought of it as a thing that lit a light bulb, right? right. And they didn't think about refrigeration and mm-hmm. all the gizmos and mm-hmm. all the things, and, and so they couldn't comprehend it. So when you have a dummy like me saying, my internet works just fine because I can watch a Coen Brothers movie on Netflix, you're saying, if you had more stuff, more stuff will come.
2: Exactly. And that parallel is so precise, it's almost painful, it's so easy, that uh, my grandmother would have called uh, her electricity bill the light bill, because many people used it just for a single light bulb hanging in their house. There weren't the appliances around yet in common use Mm -hmm. that created demand for very high capacity, inexpensive electricity. We're right there right now, that other than downloading movies, our imagination is so limited. And uh, the book imagines this future of human presence, particularly eye contact. You and I right now can yep. look each other in the eye. You can't do that over current Internet connections in the United States in a way that is satisfying. As, as yeah, and even
1: even with, you know, here at Fox Media, we have very nice equipment, and we right. did, but we did a, a teleco. We did a conference call yesterday, and people were dropping in and out, and... Mm-hmm. It's better than not seeing them, but it's not like being in the same room with them.
2: Exactly. And if we could be in the same room, think about the effects of that on our energy use, on the ability of people to work where they live rather than having to live where they work. And new forms of making money, uh, new industries, in fact, are going to emerge once we figure this problem out. But right now we're not... At that stage, you
1: mentioned money. We make money through advertising. We're going to stop for a, a brief second and hear from an <laughs> advertiser.
0: Coming up next, let's flash back to the early days of Silicon Valley with advertiser content from our sponsor, Valley of the Boom, an all new limited series from National Geographic. Check it out. <music>
3: Imagine combining the power of your computer with the convenience of a telephone. Now, with a web browser, that dream is a reality.
0: A web browser? What's that?
3: Why, it's the internet at your fingertips. Are you ready to be at the forefront of the digital revolution? Order a web browser over the phone and it's mailed right to you. In a couple of weeks, 15 floppy disks will arrive at your doorstep and then, voila! This easy-to-use graphic interface will connect you to all the World Wide Web's possibilities. Wow! Tired of lugging around encyclopedias?
0: Oh, my aching back.
3: Now everything from acrobat Ah. to zoology Ah. is just a short eight clicks away. And that's not all. With an all-new browser, you can find hundreds of very important web pages that will transform the way you live. There are sites for everything that matters, like the Klingon Dictionary or the weather. If you have a phone line, you can be online today. Support for web browsers comes from Valley of the Boom, a new limited series exploring the technology explosion of the 1990s and its inevitable bust. Valley of the Boom, premieres Sunday, January 13th at nine, eight central, only on National Geographic.
1: I'm back with Susan Crawford, who has a book called Fiber, and you can buy it right now as you as you hear this podcast. Well, listen to the podcast, then go buy the book, however you want to do it. <laughs> um, but pay attention to Susan. She's very smart. Um, you. so, so you're laying out sort of the benefit mm-hmm. to, to Fiber. Um, again, I'm going to try to set you up here. Why isn't Fiber coming right now? What is What is preventing Fiber from showing up in my house?
2: This didn't happen by accident. Over the last 20 years, we've sort of ignored this policy area and let the free market take its steps you put there's nothing free market. well because it turns out for these kinds of businesses that involve very high upfront costs uh, they tend to natural monopoly there's no reason to have two wires to your house right. and so what we've ended up with is a few companies dividing the market so Comcast takes you know city x yep. and spectrum takes city y and, and even
1: when they, Verizon and Comcast at one point were gonna fight, and they spent a couple years on it, and basically made a peace treaty, essentially saying, "All right, we're, we're done."
2: Right. They just they just divide up the market among themselves, so there really isn't a competitive market for high speed internet access in America. So, that's that's the problem.
1: But if so, but but so but there is high speed internet access, and you can defi- you can debate what high speed means, and and you can also debate what access means, right? When you spend mm-hmm. time talking about that in the book. And, there's a good piece about this, I think I don't know the Times of Journal recently. It's saying that saying that, you know, that that there's a community in rural Washington that supposedly has high-speed internet access, but it doesn't really. Mm-hmm. It's just measured as such. Um, but the point is there is internet access throughout the internet and if and throughout America. And if fiber is objectively better and can lead to Cool things. Why wouldn't the Comcast and Verizon's of the world spend money to bring that to us? (laughs) Because
2: they have no need to. They're they're unconstrained by either. I mean, they are. They have no incentive to because absent competition, because they divided the market, and absent any oversight, which Mm -hmm. is what's happened uh, up until two thousand and four, we regulated the idea of uh, a basic communications network. Every American had a phone connection at a very low price. And our phone network, when it was first introduced, was the envy of the world, covered the entire country. Today, for high-speed internet access, we don't take that approach. And so they have no incentive to upgrade their second-class lines and certainly no incentive to charge people less. Look, these companies aren't evil. They are great American companies. But the unrestrained private market, dealing with this kind of infrastructure question, is always going to end up soaking the rich for as much as they can, controlling markets, leaving out huge parts of the country, and not upgrading their facilities. They'll milk them as long as possible. Other countries have taken a very different approach. So in the book, I spent a lot of time in Seoul and in Tokyo and Stockholm and other parts of the world where they are amazed at the American situation. Uh I've never been embarrassed to be an American other than on these trips. The mayor of Stockholm took me aside and said is there anything we can do to help you? Why Why are you so stuck? Why is it so backwards? And in Seoul, they feel like coming to America is like taking a rural vacation because it's so peaceful here. We're hardly connected at you're all. Not, it's
1: not going to bother you. Yeah,
2: yeah, not, no interruption, nothing happens. You do
1: have a line in, 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 the, in the beginning. You go to Seoul and, and, and you do an amazing sort of VR experience mm-hmm. and you're talking about how wired Seoul is. And you said you met many 20-somethings who did not distinguish between online life and real life. Right for them these are simply layers of life as a whole. That doesn't sound like a good thing. If 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 and I I do you me- you mentioned the Facebook story probe yeah. yesterday would you hear this it'll be several Facebook stories ago. Yeah. But this is another data breach they mm-hmm. were releasing data they said they weren't releasing. Um, we're in a world right now where where we're really having a reckoning about sort of what we want out of technology and the internet. You're taking it as a given that if we have more internet access, faster internet access, it's inevitably going to be a good thing. Do you mm-hmm. have any is there anything that gives you pause about know, it? Maybe wouldn't be the worst thing to slow stuff down right now.
2: <laughs> All humans want to do is connect, right? Now terrorists do use telephones. Mm-hmm. There are negatives, there are These burdens YouTube that come with this. And- but the the benefit to human lives to being able to connect to more people in a way that allows them to lead a thriving life. Really, the electricity parallel, I think, speaks to people. Can you imagine a world without adequate electricity? If you just had a light bulb in your house, you could say, I've got electricity. But you wouldn't have refrigeration. You wouldn't have the notion of...
1: And you may choose to go camping or go to your rural cabin, but that's a choice you make. right?
2: exactly. And we don't even have that choice in America right now.
1: Um, What does it mean that Google... Which has both the ability, capacity, and and the the self interest to have fiber and high speed internet access. Said they were going to do this, spent a bunch of money on it, and then after a couple years, this is too much work and it's too complicated. We're not going to do it.
2: Look, they're like Verizon, which did exactly the same thing. Backed off from installing fiber. Their shareholders are impatient with the long-term capital needs involved in making sure that there's great last-mile access in America. Google had an interest in disrupting the story and making it more obvious to Americans that we've got a terrible problem with connectivity, but their shareholders were not interested in the relatively low returns involved in building infrastructure. Nobody builds a bridge assuming that they're going to make 20% a year on that investment. Mm-hmm. These are long-term investments that pay off at a rate of, let's say, 5 or 6% until the sun explodes. They're great investments, but you'd have to have a different profile as a company to be interested in that. And that's not Google's business.
1: I mean, it's extraordinary, though, right? Because Google is a money machine, right? They have an unchallenged dominance over Internet advertising, even better right. than Facebook. Um, if anyone could afford to do this, they could. If anyone could tell Wall Street, we are going to do this and we're going to do it over 20 years and go pound sand. No
2: private company has that freedom with Wall Street to say for this entire sector, we're going to do something that looks to you as if it's unprofitable. For America and for long-term policy, it's anything but unprofitable. We are actually – at a huge deficit because we're not making this investment, and it will pay off, let's, but in a different profile than these private companies are patient for.
1: Let's talk a bit about what it would cost to bring fiber everywhere, and, and also how it how you actually do it. You you go to Austin at one point, you watch them; they're literally digging a ditch
2: <laughs> to lay great.
1: to lay. I want cable to be in. the
2: John McPhee of fiber.
1: It's great. He's, it's, <laughs> you it's you're going for pages and pages and you're hanging out with these guys and I kind of right. wanted to watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh good good Netflix show. Mm-hmm. Um so you have to dig up ground, or you have to you have to tunnel through. Right. You have to stuff has to be put into the ground, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't something you can solve with an app. It's just mm-hmm. guys, men and women with machines digging. Right.
2: Eighty percent of the cost of putting in this great fiber for the last mile is the labor. These are great jobs too, gotta say. And this, this kind of investment is one that requires political will uh, and lowering the cost of capital using government guarantees and loans in order to make that money available but it's not rocket science it's just money and we spend money on a lot of things that would not be as beneficial as this one for the future i want to point out that this book is about a bunch of localities making this decision for themselves
1: right there are pockets the there are individual cities and towns that have gone ahead and just Put their own fiber in.
2: Seven hundred and fifty of them around the country, and by the way, mostly conservative places. This is a very deeply bipartisan issue. This is about making life better for everybody in your community. So there are lots of places that have decided it's worth it. It's worth it just to borrow the money and have it pay off slowly. So this is about long-term planning and patience, which doesn't necessarily fit the profile of either any one individual company. Mm And often any one politician who has to show an immediate payoff, but it like FDR who's making very long term investments for the country. This one is absolutely worth so it. So, what
1: would the bill be if we if we wanted to go ahead and get fiber everywhere?
2: The overall bill, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, and that is not what hundreds I'm attempting to billions? do.
1: Hundreds of billions. I mean,
2: oh no, not I. I, hundreds of billions. I don't think so. But. Uh, it, what we're seeing is that for localities, uh, it is a tiny increment of what they end up spending on their overall
1: bill. So you lay out convincingly the many reasons we, we're not getting this, yeah. and, and a lot of them are economic they're, mm-hmm. they're re- because we have this sort of unfettered capitalism, right? Right. So I'm assuming you're going to say that we need the equivalent of a jobs bill, right, or a, a WPA project or some sort of federal legislation sort of spurring this.
2: What's going to happen here is the same story with electricity also. that We start with localities and co-ops and agriculture, and then they gradually shame the federal government at doing something about it. And that could be an infrastructure bill. The kind of thing that the Trump administration is talking about yeah. right now could be a... Uh, giant federal effort to say we're going to lower the cost of capital for building these last mile networks across the country. We're going to
1: incent people to build this stuff mm-hmm. with tax breaks or however else we're going to do it.
2: Right. And there are it'll all create, kinds of ways to do it. It be a job
1: creation bill because mm-hmm. people have to follow the truck and put the thing in.
2: Exactly. There are all kinds of ways to do it. It's not even that complicated. Uh-huh. It just requires political will at this point. And uh, the problem for the country is that we do have something that feels like internet access to people around the country being sold to them at these very high prices by cable companies. Exactly the same thing. The electricity guys back in the 30s attacked any effort to say we need a public option or we need some oversight by saying this is Bolshevik and communist and Soviet. Those same arguments are coming out right now about the role of municipal efforts to do something about the fiber story.
1: Um, Whenever I see... Verizon or AT and T executives talk. They they are exclusively focused on the future of five G networks.
2: Yes, exactly. Which seem
1: to involve beaming the internet very quickly to my to my phone. Yeah. Um, and I'm again, I'm sort of not convinced about why that's a good thing. But mm-hmm. but they're very excited about it. Doesn't that solve this problem?
2: Well, glad you asked that, Peter. Because in fact, the book is about uh, the complementary character of these great wired fixed networks, fiber, and um, advanced wireless. The 5G connections that Verizon's talking about, at and 2 will create tsunamis of data. And in order for that data to go anywhere, there's got to be a fiber optic connection quite close by. So, those 5G worlds will only emerge in urban areas and will only emerge where there's fiber. So the two stories absolutely go together. You can't, you can't have you
1: can't have real 5G without real fiber.
2: Exactly. You, it's like saying, I all I need is an airplane. I don't need an airport. The, airport, so the why, airplane has to land so somewhere. So why isn't
1: Hans Vesberg, CEO of Verizon, saying, well, here's our plan to get fiber everywhere so we can have this 5G?
2: Well, actually, they are building their own private fiber, only connecting to their 5G plans in places like, say, Boston, they're doing that. There's a risk here that all we're going to do is recapitulate the cable-fixed monopoly for access, and they're going to have so much power in 5G that no competition will emerge, and that's a terrible story for America. Look, the role of regulation is to unleash the private markets to have a playing field to play on. We don't have that uh, infrastructure in place right now, And we keep building these oligopolies that uh, can charge us whatever they want for very small amounts of service. And that's a risk with 5G as well.
1: So we talked about Google and their efforts just to do this and then Mm -hmm. they backed off. You would think even if they're not going to spend the billions of dollars that the Googles and Facebooks and Netflixes would be out there sort of agitating for this.
2: You'd think. These guys don't want to have – people talking about, you know, they don't want to say look at that monopoly over there because there are monopolies in their own playing fields. And so that's why they're not active here. They're big enough. That, they also
1: don't complain about net neutrality because and right. Reed Hastings said this on stage to me a couple years ago uh, at the Code Conference because Netflix had been a big net neutrality right. proponent and eventually said, I, we're big enough now, it's not a right. fight.
2: Right, this is all about power and leverage and Comcast needs Netflix as much as Netflix needs Comcast. So they're big enough that they can make it They're in the club. They're in the club, and they've pulled up the ladder behind them. America is a scrappy uh, entrepreneurial place. There are many other companies that could emerge that would be given a playing field if we got this right.
1: There there was something in my Twitter feed uh, last week or so. It was actually a chart we published at at Recode saying that uh, broadband speeds have increased X percent in the last year. And a lot of the commentary was, ah, see, you know, this is supposed to go away post-net neutrality. Mm -hmm. Um, But look, things are getting better. Um, And and everyone told us that net neutrality was going to lead to these, that the the loss of net neutrality was going to lead to these terrible conditions. They haven't materialized. Are we waiting for that shoe to drop or are we misunderstanding the
2: argument? There's a lot of bafflement and confusion in the telecommunications policy area. Um, Net neutrality itself is just a worry about the power of one of these companies to slow traffic. Yep. We haven't done anything about that power and we haven't actually done anything to cramp their business incentives not to upgrade their networks and not to compete. All the book is talking about is the requirement of basic neutral access like clean water, like uh, energy markets. That's the way we should be treating telecommunications. The data we have on all of this, by the way, in the um, halls of the FCC is decidedly third rate. So when somebody says, well, speeds are getting better, that's likely based on data self-reported by the cable companies themselves um, and is not very good as a basis on I which to I give myself policy. an A. Exactly. reporter. And you just saw uh, Microsoft coming up with a big report about, two weeks ago, saying that, in fact, 162 million Americans don't have... That was the piece I was thinking of. Yeah, it's a very powerful piece of research. They don't have adequate Internet access today. And you're right that what adequate Internet access is is a matter of definition by the FCC, and the FCC is using a really weird, very low definition and cramped, saying that uploads don't have to be at the same rate as downloads. So they say 25 megabits per second down, three megabits per second up, in the eyes of someone from China, South Korea, Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, that's a ridiculous definition. That's like uh, putting someone on the bike path when the rest of the country is on a major eight-lane highway. That's a very small amount of data at a very low uh, speed.
1: What um, When we talked four years ago, and it was after this this net neutrality decision, um, uh, court challenged by Verizon, and, and you yeah. said, well, this, this can all be fixed. Um, the FCC can basically decide to regulate internet access like it does telco. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, really? You make it sound like it's really easy? You just yeah. sort of sign something? He said, yeah, yeah, we did. And sure enough, they did. did. Um, so for policy stuff, this this stuff can move back and forth fairly easily, right? <laughs> I mean, the flip side is that they just pulled the plug on that right. with the Trump administration. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we can go back and forth. To get fiber to homes, right, that's not just a signing document, right? That's that's real political will and capital mm-hmm. and actual financial capital. It seems like an enormous project for a country that really is struggling to do lots of basic things.
2: More than 4 million Americans wrote in about net neutrality back in the days of those battles in 2014 and 2015. And three-quarters of Americans, again, really think this is an important issue. And for people who can't get access at all, it's like not being able to breathe. It's a huge problem. This is one of those basic issues that is akin to what we're doing on defense or whether our water is clean or our air is clean. This is fundamental to how the country operates. The reason there's so much it seems of a, like
1: It seems like the audience for this podcast would yeah. agree with you, and it's hard for me to imagine a broader audience that has real problems getting food and shelter or they have all sorts of political misinformation and they believe the Russians are coming to Florida. Mm-hmm. Their, whatever it is, it's hard to imagine this really becoming a national a national issue?
2: You know, um, those other problems are on the same level, I would say. We are heading towards a reckoning. How do we help people lead uh, thriving lives in America? What's happened to our basic sense of uh, you need a good education, you need good health care, you need a utility communication service? All of those things are do need to be fixed. This one is is fundamental to many of the other policy issues we care about. If you care about climate change, if you care about uh, education or health, those require a fantastic communications network so that people get access to those services. The reason there's been such a kerfuffle over net neutrality is that what that fight is really about is how we think about telecommunications. Is it basic to human life or a luxury? And the reason that Comcast and the other guys are fighting against these buzzwords, net neutrality, is because what they really want to avoid is being relabeled as a utility service, something that's subject to government oversight. Mm -hmm. We've missed the boat on that Right now, we can always turn the boat around. And we seem to be heading there as a country. There's a kind of progressive revival going on in the cities around the country that where people actually see how services are delivered, education, health, communications, they really get involved. And where a mayor cares about all of his or her citizens, they'll the capacity to care about something like fiber carries with it the capacity to care about education, workforce development, health, and everything else. And this book explores that evolution. This is just part of a major story for the country, that that this day of reckoning that's coming, I think, in the 2020 election where people say we we actually care about everyone as a country and it's important that we put our money where our our American values are.
1: You traveled around the world to go see sort of the future of fiber or what fiber looks like now. Mm -hmm. If I don't want to cross the Pacific, um, there are cities in America that have done this. Mm -hmm. What's sort of a good working lab for me to go visit? I want to see the benefit of doing this.
2: I think Chattanooga is, tr- is a pretty terrific story. It's Tennessee. T- in Tennessee. And it's a dirty old mill town from the 60s and 70s that redid itself in a whole series of actions. And one of them has been to ensure fiber access. What, you're, what you see there is many new businesses showing up. You also, though, see a city that is now turning— They paid for it themselves? Yeah, well, they had some grant money for smart grid that was so you can measure energy use using fiber and that money was plowed into the fiber network but it long ago paid for itself and now now the the electricity rates are going down for the people in Chattanooga because they've made so much money from fiber. But you also see a place traditionally deeply segregated, a lot of poverty, turning towards workforce development, turning towards increasing the number of high school graduates who are ready for the great jobs that are showing up. So in small, Chattanooga is the story of what America could be.
1: So so spell out, why why does getting fiber to Chattanooga improve high school graduation Mm.
2: rates? It's more about the mindset of leaders in Chattanooga, business leaders, civic leaders, the mayor, the whole populace. We could accomplish
1: this. We, we could do, do this
2: and and we care about what happens to our high school graduates and what they can do, what their opportunities are. And that's of a piece with a long series of developments in Chattanooga. It wasn't like fiber arrived uh, alone as is, is a part of the narrative. It's part of a greater narrative for Chattanooga. But what I point to in the book is that it's also part of supporting the entire populace, not just a few people.
1: It's funny because when I read your book, yeah. it's quite it's it's very high protein, right? It's very dense, a lot of information. It's yeah. great. Um, it's easy to read. Uh, it's also quite dour, I think. I mean it, it provides very sort of stark arguments against why any of this is going to happen. And I talk to you and you you seem much more optimistic. Maybe <laughs> maybe I'm missing the optimism in the book. In the same way that we, you, know, you watch the wire you're like oh endemic crime and yeah. and corruption is is part of urban america we can't stop it mm-hmm. but you 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 think this can be fixed
2: look i'm resilient and cheerful like all other americans we're always like this we built the hoover dam you know we built the tennessee valley authority we built the national highway system and we led as a country from the certainly from the uh, end of the second world war until let's say the 70s we can do it again. The other thing I discovered on these trips around the world is that the grit and ingenuity and scrappiness and kind of playfulness of Americans is not necessarily echoed in those other places. They may have great networks, but they don't have our entrepreneurial sense. And what I dream of is marrying that great American spirit of inventing new things with an actual network that would allow us to build those new industries. We don't have that right Susan now.
1: Susan Crawford, you should run for office.
2: <laughs> no, I want other people to run for office.
1: I I, uh, I want to leave on that optimistic note, You, I knew you would be great as a podcast so I guest. I was trying to get you on for years. Uh-huh. Now you've a book so you're the reason to come. So thank you so much. Thanks, very much. thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to our editors, producers, engineers. Um, thanks to you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.
0: This episode was brought to you by Valley of the Boom from National Geographic. This all-new six-part limited series follows the stories of three companies trying to change the world through technology during Silicon Valley's unprecedented tech boom of the 90s. From the first browser wars to the story of a carn artist on the run from the FBI who reinvents himself as a tech entrepreneur, these are the true stories of how the web was won. Valley of the Boom premieres Sunday, January 13th at 9, 8 central on National Geographic. But you can watch the first two episodes right now on demand and on the Nat Geo TV app.